there is a creature alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill. A mindless eating machine. It will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him jaws. <laughs> this is Universal's extraordinary motion picture version of Peter Benchley's best-selling novel, Jaws. I just found out that a girl got killed here last week, and you knew it. You knew there was a shark out there. You knew it was dangerous, but you let people go swimming anyway. dealing with here is a perfect engine, uh, an eating machine. We're not only going to have to close the beach, we're going to have to hire somebody to kill the shark. Bad fish, but I'll catch him and kill him. Did you hear your father out of the water now? This shark, swallow you whole. You're going to need a bigger boat. That's a 20-footer. 25. Three tons of them. fantasies of evil can compare with the reality of Jaws. Roy Scheider, Robert Shaw, Richard Dreyfuss, Jaws. See it before you go swimming. And now we're pleased to bring you our feature presentation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Is It Jaws? Not only is this the inaugural episode of that show, but this is also episode number, I don't know, of the Film and Water <laughs> podcast. And as such, I have with me today Rob Kelly, the host of that show. Hello, Paul. Hey, Rob. And I didn't bother to say, I'm Paul Spataro. <laughs> Probably should put that information out there. Just briefly, uh, 
anybody who listens to the Film and Water podcast knows, you know, Rob's format is that he has people who have a uh, deep connection to certain movies come on and they go over them at length, uh, which is effectively what I'm going to be doing on this show. And part of my uh, part of part of what I wanted to do with it is I didn't want to do it unless I spoke to Rob and made sure he didn't have a problem with me going forward with it since the shows are so similar. And then I thought we had a real it would be a real good thing to actually have him as the co-host on the first episode. So I'm glad you were able to do it, and I appreciate your uh, your blessing with me going forward with this show. Well, the, the legal papers are filed now, so that's good. We squared all that away. Uh, and once we got that uh, nastiness settled, yes, I'm very happy to be on. I, I love movie podcasts. I'm happy you're doing one. I think this title is great. And, of course, we're going to get to talk about one of both our favorite movies. Your Maybe yours is even a little more than mine in terms of li- uh, favorite list. But, uh, yeah, and I'm very happy to be on your first uh, first episode here. It's for, for people who need background information, initially Rob resisted until DeManzo Corp put a shark's head in his bed. <laughs> Then all of a sudden it was okay with him. <laughs> but uh, just just by way of background for the title of the show and, and what I want to do with it a little bit is uh, on one of the Two True Freaks review shows, I believe it was the review of the most recent Godzilla film. Uh, I was criticizing the film a bit for lack of Godzilla in the Godzilla film. <laughs> and and one, of the, uh, one of the co-hosts of that particular broadcast commented that it was similar to Jaws in that they kept the monster off screen to keep your curiosity building. Uh, and my comment effectively, if I remember correctly, was that it didn't work because Godzilla was boring and Godzilla was, I think I believe I said, this is no Jaws. And it's really not fair to compare it to one of the greatest movies of all time. Uh, as, as a result, I've gotten a reputation. People think Jaws is my all-time favorite movie and I'll come right out and say it's not, but it's damn close to it. It's no question in my top 10 of all time. Uh, the Godfather is my favorite movie of all time, hence the shark's head in Rob's bed. And what I thought, even though it's not necessarily my rating for the respective Jaws and its sequels, for my for my purposes, uh, we're going to rank the movies on each episode. And a classic movie will be Jaws. A very good movie, very enjoyable, a lot of pluses, but not classic, will be Jaws 2. A movie that you can watch, but you could see a lot of flaws to it, that would be Jaws 3. And a movie that's just basically unwatchable, that's Jaws the Revenge. So, again, that's not necessarily my, my reviews of each, and Rob and I will talk about each of them a little bit more at length, but that's going to be the rating that, system. I'm going to argue with that rating system as we go on, but that's we'll, we'll get to that. Well, again, I'm, I'm telling you that's not necessarily how I view each of the movies. Okay. Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. I, I, I think uh, for Jaws... Two and three, I'm propping them up a little higher rating purposes. <laughs> so. so I don't know that we're going to have any argument. Okay. But I think for rating purposes, if, if it's got to be an all-time classic or drop to the level of Jaws 2, that leaves an awful lot of in-between room there. That's a lot of, there's a lot of space between Jaws and Jaws 2, yeah. Yeah, so I, I have to prop it up a little higher, and then the same thing with Jaws 3. So Jaws 4, I can leave right where it is. <laughs> So, uh, and anybody who has not yet listened, Rob has already done an episode on Jaws, which was excellent, and I recommend it highly on the Film and Water podcast. Thank you. I'd like to try and do ours a little bit differently. That one had covered a lot more of the scientific uh, background of sharks and right. and how realistic the movie was or not so much in certain points. But uh, I think we're going to concentrate a little bit more on the film itself and just the experience as a moviegoer and less on the science in this particular show. So first thing I was curious to know is, 
Rob, did you look over the uh, did you ever look over the budget and gross box office on this movie at all? Uh, I'm sure I have at some point. I don't remember. I mean, it was for a couple of years the number one grossing film of all time. It it it, it held that title for two years until Star Wars. Um, and budget wise, I don't remember. Like, it, I don't remember reading that it wasn't terribly. It went over budget, but I don't remember it, that it being like that crazy a budget. Well, I'm I'm going to throw out the numbers to you that I'm getting off of Wikipedia, so you have to take them with a little bit of a grain of salt. That the budget was nine million dollars, according to Wikipedia. Okay, all right. For 1975, that's not nothing, but it wasn't... Yeah, it's not crazy breaking yeah. the bank. Yeah. But uh, now by today's standards, I think, you know, when they factor in the advertising costs and everything, they say in order to be considered profi- profitable, the box office needs to be two and a half times the budget. That's okay. the numbers they keep bouncing. I've heard that, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to ask you, and I'm putting you on the spot here, what do you think the box office was for Jaws? I know it made over a hundred, and it's the it was the first movie ever to do so. So I'm gonna just say it made 120. Now again, this number is from Wikipedia, so I don't know if it's 100 percent accurate, but it they quoted as 470 oh million dollars. Is that incredible? Wow. Now you factor in also that this this came out at a time where there was no home video, and so you'd have people seeing it multiple times, probably. Plus, when Jaws 2 came out, Jaws was in it. as They, they had Jaws as a double feature in a lot of theaters. So there are factors to increase it, but that is still just a phenomenally high number, especially considering is, the, the dollars from the time this movie was released. Yeah, the return on the return on investment there is absurd. Wow, I had no idea it made that kind of money. Nor did I. This just came as a shock to me. I, I put you on the spot to, to guess at it, but I cannot tell you that I would have been any more accurate, and I might not have even been as accurate. When I heard $9 million, I, I'm thinking I might have guessed somewhere around the 60 to $70 million range. I knew what you said. I knew it broke 100 because they, they, they put out an ad. I remember Universal put out an ad saying this is the first film ever to break $100 million. Like that, that People thought that number was not breakable. And so, and I remember it had the shark on it and it was in black and white and did a whole thing. So that number I knew I had in my head, but I didn't know it went worldwide. I didn't know it went that far. I never knew that the film was that big of a hit worldwide until I saw some documentaries and they talked about that it was, it was a huge hit pretty much everywhere. I'm assuming the $470 million number factors in worldwide gross as opposed to domestic. Yeah, it would have to be. But even then. <laughs> yeah. No, that's ridiculous. That's that's a and you could see why they were so determined to keep making more of these stupid sequels when you have that kind of money made on the first film. If you're if you're a suit running Universal, you're like we got to keep making these because look at this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's like a license to print money. Yeah. And uh, I guess as we get through to the other ones, we'll look because I haven't yet, and we'll see what kind of uh, budgets versus return they had. But for now, we'll just stick with yours. Now I I know you discussed this. On your show, on your previous show, rather. Uh, but when did you first see this? I know you're significantly younger than me, so uh, I don't know if significantly. I didn't see it in the. I didn't see it in its original release because I was a toddler and I, there was just no way. But I really do remember seeing it in the theater. So because I, I distinctly remember watching um, Quint get it and how disturbing that was. So uh, I must have seen it on maybe a re-release. Uh, I know I saw Jaws 2 in the theater. I distinctly remember what theater we saw it at, like what was at a mall and all that stuff. But I, I remember seeing Jaws in the theater, so it must have been a re-release maybe around the time of Jaws 2 or maybe later on or something. And I, I would have been maybe 9 or 10, and I guess my dad figured I was, it was safe for me to see at that point. But I do remember being in a theater watching Quint get it, and that scene is still so etched in my memory. 
yeah, that's, and we'll talk a little bit more about Quint in a moment. Yeah, I, you know, this, this is obviously predating the internet, and I didn't really hear much of a buzz about it. When this came out, I was 12. So uh, I do remember watching like some morning show or something like that where they did the movie review. And even at 12 years old, I was a movie buff. And they showed the scene where they're on the uh, the orca and they're, they're gauging its size. Mm-hmm. I, I remember that distinctly. And they basically said, this is going to be the next big thing. Hmm. And that evening, my parents took me to the Oriental Theater in Brooklyn, which was you know one, one of the more plush Brooklyn theaters of the day. Uh, it no longer exists, but it was pretty famous at the time. And it's the first movie I can ever remember seeing where we had to wait on a line that went around the block <laughs> to see the movie. And it scared the heck out of me. Oh, yeah. I remember going to the beach afterwards and I just, you know, I wouldn't go in past like my knees. <laughs> I, I was terrified from this movie for quite a while. I always joke around, say, you know, I wouldn't sit on the toilet after I saw this movie. <laughs> I still don't. I still don't go into the water much past my legs when I go to the ocean. I still am just a little like, eh, okay, this is good enough. Yeah, and and I mean, I, I in your earlier show when when you discussed uh, the lack of proclivity of sharks to go after people, I, I could hear even with that you had the same reaction I would of yeah that's all well and good but I'm not testing the theory. <laughs> yeah. I do not want to be the exception. I just, I'm perfectly happy not being you know the guy in the book like in the uh, you know the annals of shark books like oh there was that one guy though. Ocean City, <laughs> that that, that Kelly he, fella. <laughs> yeah that that poor bastard. No I, that's fine. I, I don't need to be in the water that badly despite my love of Aquaman. Yeah, I, I uh, a few years back I, I went you know to a, an all inclusive resort with my family and my kids still make fun of me to this day that we were in the water and a fish swam by and like brushed up against me and and I, I let out like a squeal like a little girl <laughs> and and they still think that's the funniest thing <laughs> but yeah no <laughs> anyway uh, so this this is a movie that I've pretty much watched. I would say at least once a year, maybe several times in a given year since since it's been you know since it's been available to me at home, uh, and and it's pretty much one of these ones where anytime I'm changing channels and it's on, I stop and I watch. Yeah, you could pick it up at any point and get sucked in and watch the rest of it. It's it's just it's just one of those kinds of movies. It's like Shawshank Redemption or Raiders. You know, you just can't. You're like, oh, this that's a great scene, and then before you know it, the credits are over. Yeah, exactly. I I, I have heard. The expression, or I've been told, "Oh, you're watching Jaws again." <laughs> that's that's been said to me several times over my lifetime, and it's like, yes, I could watch this. I could probably watch this movie day after day without getting tired of it. Yeah, I saw it in the Cinemark, uh, one of the theater chains here last year. They showed it for July Fourth, and I hoped that they were going to do that again because I my attitude was if they wanted to show it. Maybe not once a month, but if they showed it every couple of months, I'd go see it. Even though I have it on video and I can, it's readily available to me. I if I'll, I'll see it anytime somebody is is showing it because it's just so it's so fun to watch on a big screen. I've fought the urge to buy the Blu-ray because I have the DVD, the whatever it was, the Ultimate Edition DVD that they came out with, mm-hmm. and I feel like it's it's just being such a tool to go out and buy it on Blu-ray now. <laughs> But there is apparently a documentary on there that I haven't seen yet. So it's, again, I'm fighting the urge. Is I it, see it in, I, the, the documentary is called The Shark is Still Working. 
I think that's the documentary that's on the Blu-ray, which if that's what it is, that's a pretty good documentary. I don't know if it's worth buying a Blu-ray for it, but it's a pretty good documentary. I'm thinking if I see it in like, you know, some sort of real discount bin for like five bucks or something like that, I'll pick it up. Or I haven't I haven't even thought of this till just now. If I look in my library and they have it on Blu-ray, mm-hmm. I could just take it out, which would be cool. Yeah, it's a good documentary. They dig up like uh, some of the ancillary players, which is fun. Like the oh what they get that guy, <laughs> yeah. you know, and they they tell some stories about what happened to some of the props, and they go to Amity. It's a very far-reaching documentary. Like I said, I don't know if it's worth the purchase of a Blu-ray if you already have it on DVD, but it's you know it's pretty it's pretty good in its completeness of of getting to Spielberg's in it, Dreyfus is in it, Scheider's in it, Mrs. Kintner is in it. I mean they you know Carl Gottlieb they do a really good job of tracking everybody down. Well, they, they also have a documentary on the DVD that I have. So yeah. uh, there's probably a lot of overlap on there as well. Yeah, I love that. I actually like that documentary a little more, the one on the DVD, because it just has my favorite moment where it talks about the whole you're going to need a bigger boat scene. Mm-hmm. And and then they cut to Roy Scheider talking about that. You know, Roy Scheider came up with that, with that line. He invented it. It's not in a screenplay. And it was funny to watch Roy Scheider like sort of comment on the idea that this thing he said is now part of the culture, you know? And he's like, he's like, yeah, he goes, this, this thing that I said has now become part of the culture. It's become a definition for an insurmountable problem. And I just, I just chuckle at that. I love that idea that like Roy Scheider luckily lived long enough for people to, for him to to see that, that he added that to the culture. Cause I mean, you can just use that line now for anything you know, and and people get what it means. It's true. It's very true. Now, there's quite a few, but that that may be the biggest one or the most quoted one. But the yeah. uh, this was no boating accident. <laughs> that's that's a big one, and that's that's so, that's part of the movie that I, I even wanted to talk about how the, the living in denial aspect of it that we go through, and that's something I wanted to touch on with the mayor when, as we're getting through the body of this. But uh, I. I Took some notes as I was watching it again for this, as if I need a bunch of notes. But I, I started right with the opening scene. And what I liked about that, first of all, the little beach party that's going on. Uh, anybody who's past college years, I think, can relate to a scene like that. And then how it goes, they go into the water. And there's it starts right off. And, and Steven Spielberg is just phenomenal to me because he was, what was he, 24 years old when they made this? Yeah, 25 ridiculous how good he and, was and just the elegance of that scene when when she's in the water and there's the weightlessness feeling to her and the serene serenity and how that serenity is broken by the shark and it's just you know it, it to me it, it, it shows right up right from the bat there's just a certain tone that on movies of this nature copycat movies that they've attempted to make i can't think of one where they recreated that type of feel and then built on it with the terror most of them either they don't bother to build that serene, that serene moment or they do such just a rush job on it that it doesn't give you that feeling. And so, like I said, right off the bat, he starts off with a certain elegance in this movie that I think is just terrific. Yeah, it's 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 a nice, calm scene, and then it turns to white-knuckle terror really quickly. And then just as soon as you realize what you're watching, it's over. Yeah, you and when, she as she's going through it, girl. it's like you can feel her pain. And they, they do have a nice scene of that on the DVD documentary where they show or where she talks about how they swung her back and forth on two different lines to create the, the image of the shark biting down on her and kind of doing the death rattle, which, which is interesting. And I have no idea if a shark attack would be anything like that, but 
<laughs> but it did create a terror of that feeling <laughs> that that when we talk about, you know, not being so comfortable going out in the water, that's what I imagine. Yeah. Well, the idea that like there's that, you know, five or 10 seconds after she's been bitten the first time and she has a realization of what's happening to her. That to me is the most terrifying. You know, I mean, as bad as it would be to be eaten by a shark, not that I ever want to imagine such a thing, but it's like if it happened to you super fast, it's over. But like she she survived long enough to understand what's just happened and where and that she's now very unsafe. And that to me is like the most terrifying. And of course, the fact that you never see it. You just see her. You They don't show you the shark nothing it's just boom and then she's pulled under and then that's it that's one of the things that i've often wondered though is they talk about how the shark didn't work correctly and that it was serendipitous that it created that feeling where you you know where you never see the shark and you just have the suspense early on and i wonder had the shark worked correctly where we would have seen him otherwise like would we have seen the shark in that scene I, I can't imagine where you would have seen it because it was a night scene, like how you would have even shown him. You maybe would have seen a fin or something. But yeah, uh, I, I, I get the feeling that this scene probably would have stayed the way it was, that you never would have seen it. You probably would have had some. I know that like the, when Kidner gets it, that scene was supposed to be more explicit and, and it didn't work for various reasons. So, But this thing probably would have remained the way it was. And I said it, it is a, an amazing grabber of an opening. Just yeah, perfect. Well, I, I know the scene in the pond where the gentleman on the rowboat right gets bitten they actually have a deleted scene on the dvd which was more graphic and it it didn't really work it, it created more terror to not have it be quite so graphic yep so my uh my other thing just kind of initial in my notes was that i really thought right off the bat they captured the feeling of that small town uh you know community the island community with the 50th annual regatta that they have going on. So they let you know this is, you know, a regular thing. Every summer they go through this. Uh, I kind of felt like they just captured the the positives and the negatives of a town of that nature. And using Roy Scheider as a New Yorker out of his element was a great way of contrasting that and having him be our point of view character to to give the feeling of, you know, what, what this island is like and how he's an outsider. And as he's trying to convince them of what's going on, He's going to be looked at as an outsider. You know, don't tell us, your, uh, you know, our business, uh, Chief. Just do what we tell you. That kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, there's the line with the kid on the beach where he's like, you know, are you from here? Yeah, I'm an islander. Like, the, the, the Amityville people really take that as a source of pride. And, you know, when he's like, are you from here? He's like, no, I'm from New York. And then there's the dialogue with Ellen about the house. Like, clearly they're brand new. That He doesn't even know that the sun comes in through the window on... Uh, uh, you know, uh, through the bedroom window at a certain angle because he hasn't been there before. Yeah, they really set that up immediately. And you, you're, you know, you immediately sort of sympathize with Roy Scheider, you know, with, with Brody. You're like, okay, I'm totally on this guy's side. He's, he's faced with something. He basically escaped to this island because he wanted an easier life. And now he's got a giant problem. Just He'd probably be perfectly happy to go back to uh, muggers and drug dealers in New York rather than face a giant shark. Yeah. And, and I think we could talk a little bit at length about... Uh about the mayor at this point <laughs> because he, he's the primary source of, uh, of contrast to, you know, he, he's the, the Islander uh, example that we get. And I think he's great in this movie. I just think one of the things I have about this is he kind of goes through a story arc here and his story is told by the time, basically by the time uh, Kittner's mother slaps Brody. That's pretty much it for the mayor. His story is done at that point effectively. Well, no, I'm sorry. I got to take that back. His story is done when Brody has him sign the paperwork yep. to, hire, to hire Quint. 
and I really kind of had a problem. We'll talk to talk about it more in a little while, but I really had a problem with the way they used him in Jaws two because of that. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's uh, yeah. <laughs> he, he goes through his story arc. He he is one hundred percent. He he's he's a villain in this movie, but he's not a bad guy. He's a villain because he's put in the position of being a villain. He, but he is absolutely doing what he thinks is right for the town and, and the community. And he thinks he's serving his obligations. But his actions do cause people to die. And that's why I'm putting him in the villain category. Uh, but there's no question about it that he thinks he's doing the right thing. And that's, I think it's evidenced very clearly when the attack on the beach occurs and He's there and he's basically in shock afterwards and saying, you know, I, I had my children in the, in the water, too. You know, he, he wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't do as I say, not as I do. He was he was living up to what he was telling the other people to do. When he sent, told them to go in the water, he sent his kids in the water, too. Yeah, I think he's a little glib uh, at times. The whole line about supposedly injured some bathers, which I know he's doing PR. But yeah, at least he does. He, You're right. That scene in the hospital, that's it for him. You don't need him anymore because he's finally come around. He was the last piece of opposition to to Brody. And now once he signs the paper, that's it. And the, the, very smartly, the movie shifts at that point from, I, in my mind, from being a horror movie to an adventure movie. And the movie then is just those three characters at that point. But yeah, you don't need the mayor anymore. As, 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 as nice as it is to look at that blazer that he's got, that anchor blazer. <laughs> Both of the blazers. Both of the blazers. You just don't need him anymore. You're like, okay, he's he he was the last piece of resistance, and we've conquered it because he sees that the town is going to be ruined uh, by this, and unless we do something immediately, and now we do. So yeah, it's perfect. And Mary Ham Mary Hamilton is terrific. He's so unctuous, so oily, so insincere, but yet you could see how he would be a mayor. You could oh, totally absolutely. get how he would glad hand, glad hand people and BS people to be a mayor. You completely buy it. But I, I think you see a little bit of the pressure he's under. That he's he's trying to make everybody happy and keep this community up and running when they have the town hall meeting. Oh, it's such and, a great scene. Yeah, absolutely. But when you know Roy Scheider says we're going to close the beaches, and you see the uproar from the crowd. Twenty-four so he, hours is like three weeks. That's exactly what I was going to mention. So he he tries to placate the crowd by saying only twenty-four hours, and they're still pissed at him. <laughs> I love that lady. The 24 hours is like three weeks, lady. That is such a great piece of audio. Absolutely. I, I, that brings a smile to my face every time I hear it. <laughs> but I think it shows the pressure that he was under. You know, it's not he's a villain for villain's sake or he's he's discounting what Brody is saying because he doesn't trust him. He's under pressure to keep this beach open. So, yeah, yeah. So whenever he can come up with an excuse and he's, you know, if you're putting this in real life, then you're going to say, well, shark, shark attacks are so rare, especially in these waters. This isn't going to happen again. Right. So I need to keep this community up and running. So I'm going to keep these beaches open. So I, I think uh, I think his performance is, is really well done. And it's written in a layered fashion where you can understand his motivations, which I, I just think it's great, especially he's not one of the big three in this movie. You know, he's he's a smaller part than that, and yet they still give him a lot. Yeah, and Spielberg and Gottlieb, uh, Carl Gottlieb, the screenwriter, very astutely removed all the other backstory from the book, which was the mayor was under control by the mob or getting leaned on by the mob because the mob had heavily invested in Amity, and there was all this stuff with real estate, and there was all this stuff backstory with the mayor, and they cut all that. They just made it like 
No, because you don't need it. You know, you told that scene that you just pointed out completely gets it across. The, the people don't want to hear that the beaches are closed. They just don't want to hear it because they know that means that they're, as Quinn says, you're going to be on welfare the whole winter. They don't want to hear that. And so he's trying to placate voters. You totally get it. It's simple. It's justified. It's understandable. And you don't need all that other stuff. So screenwriting wise, it was perfect what they gave what they did for the mayor. The next note I have is one that you did cover in your other show is that how uh, Pippet and uh, Kittner kind of evoked the same amount of emotion. So he's got just as much emotion for a dog that you don't see attacked as for a little boy that you do. And that's, yeah, that's kind I of amazing. Yeah, I would. The people you don't want to see a uh, movie, you know, I, I, you know, whatever your personal vi- mileage may vary. But like movies that have scenes of like, I mean, I know it's fake for God's sakes, but just things with animal violence really turn me off. And, uh, you know, and so, yeah, you don't want to see I feel bad for poor Pippet, uh, but at least they were smart enough to, you know, realize, yeah, uh, you know, you don't want to see. Plus, plus, on a technical level, they probably would have had a tough time trying to figure out how to do it. Because yeah, you couldn't have had a real would. dog. It would have been an animatronic dog and an animatronic shark. You know, what a mess that might have been. Yeah, I, I, it probably would have looked very phony. Yeah. Even even with today's CGI abilities, uh, you know, I'm not sure you could do it just right. Yeah. And and plus, it would it, anytime, anytime you're seeing an attack on a small child or an animal, it just evokes such a negative emotion that you do yeah. risk spoiling the rest of the movie. Plus, that scene with Pippet, it doesn't explicitly, I mean, you look, you know it's the shark, but he doesn't explicitly say it's the shark. So it just gives you that sense of unease, which you're about to get then walloped with a two by four when Kintner gets it. But, you know, when the guy's just like, Pippet, Pippet, like, you don't, you, 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 you know, intellectually, the shark yeah. did it. But you don't, you haven't seen it. So it's just putting you at ease, which is a nice way to layer it in. Like, I think, all right, I think to a large extent, we're talking filmmaking 101 on the not showing the dog get attacked. Because if you think about it, nine out of ten times in a movie where a dog is attacked, it's off screen and you just hear like the cry. Mm-hmm. And that's it. So I yeah. think I think filmmakers across the world know not to show those scenes. Yeah, there's a scene in a, there's a really nasty dog death joke in Superman Returns. And I like that movie a lot, and I hate that scene. Like, I hate that scene so much, I would love to edit it out of the movie if I had the equipment. Because I'm like, it's so discordant with being in a Superman movie. You know, I'm like, why is there a dead dog joke in a Superman movie? And so, you know, and it it feels like a goof, and it just feels very disrespectful. Spielberg had a lot more like, no, you don't want to see the dog. We don't want to show the dog. It's It's better for the audience across the board to just hint at, okay, something's already, the shark's around. The shark is around. Yeah, I think I think Spielberg in general, uh, even in the movies that aren't, you know, up to the quality of some others, I think he's always had a sense of how far he could bring his audience. And at what point he's got to say, all right, that's enough. Yeah, he's one of the greatest guys ever to do it. You know, I'd say I would put him in top 10 directors ever of all time. Full oh, stop, yeah, no question know? in my mind. Yeah. Now, now in, in that scene with, with the attack on, on, on the beach, uh, at least, oh well, yeah. I had, I had two things on there. Uh, one one thing was it's mentioned in the documentary. Uh, Spielberg talks about it, and and when you look at it, something that always escaped my view. But when I looked at it closely, it's just a, a marvelous thing. Uh, when they show him Brody on the beach, on the you know sitting on the chair as this is going on, and he's scanning out to the water, instead of having tra- you know traditional transitions, he'll have somebody walk by the camera and cut to a beach scene and then have somebody come by and cut back to Brody. Mm-hmm. 
and just it, it was very Hitchcockian. In fact, I think they mentioned, uh, I think it may have been in Rope or something where they used that type of transition because he used the one camera angle through the whole, or the one camera, rather, through the whole movie. And when he had to do a transition, he'd have somebody walk by or somebody open something up in front of the camera or whatever. So it reminded me very much of Hitchcock. But I thought it also, uh, I talked about in that opening scene how there was an elegance to it. I think that created a more just smooth transition from the tension that he was feeling to what he was looking at yeah i mean he's all he's trying to do is look at the water and all these people are in his way and that's exactly what the movie's doing it's putting people in your way because you you're trying to watch brody watch the water and people are getting in your way the way they're getting in brody's way and you're getting that sense of annoyance like you know you're trying you're you're as frustrated as brody is for basically the same reason and it's, it's perfectly constructed yeah absolutely and and it was along those along that scene when i uh I had the feeling of uh, Hitchcock's theory of building the suspense. That's where I thought John Williams kind of took over a little bit with that. You know, the, you know, Hitchcock always said it's it's better to show somebody that there's a bomb in the room and have the suspense that the clock is ticking down rather than just do a jump scare of having a bomb explode right. and, and just scare them for the moment. And I think the theme music at that point in that scene is when it effectively takes over uh, and becomes just as effective as showing you the shark. You have that music playing, and now your suspense is just building and building and building because you know that the payoff of that mu- of that music is a is a shark attack. Yeah. Oh, it's it, you know. I mean, this is one of the great film scores of all time, and yeah, and it's used perfectly. It really, again, it, it heightens that sense of unease. Something's really wrong. Something's just you know, you're you're not in full control of what you're seeing or, or what your what the actions are to the people around you. It's again, just it's it's like one of those you know. I I've never been to film school. I really feel like I should have gone maybe, but like I feel like this is a movie that should be taught. If it's not already film school, about how to build scenes, how to construct tension. I mean, just every across the board from acting set, you know, the camera work, the music, everything about it is just flawless. I've, I've taken film classes, but when I took them, Jaws was still kind of too new to be the focus of the classes. Mm. So they, they really focused much more in the classes I took on Hitchcock. Hitchcock, uh, right, right, Hitchcock right. and Orson Welles were the two that right. they focused on. And at least at that time, you know, being a late teenager or in my early 20s, having them show you a movie and having you sit and, you know, if, if you're a movie fan, you just kind of get taken in by the movie and you stop, you, you do stop noticing little things. You just go with the story and, and you notice, you know, you notice what's going on, but you don't notice all the little things that make up the scenes. And then sitting and having them dissect the movie in front of you. Showing, showing still shots of scenes and how it's framed and what kind of thing they're trying to evoke there or showing you a short scene and telling you pay attention to the way the music is playing with you know a Bernard Herman score on it and just you know it, it really is amazing when you see the things that affect you that you don't take conscious note of at the time and and I would say that scene is is a prime example of it for me there's a great quote uh, even if it's great in its wrongness in the um Marvel super special adaptation of Jaws 2 and it's got an inter- it's got a bunch of back features and it has an interview with the director of Jaws 2 Jeanneau uh, I think it's Jeanneau I think it's how you say his name Jeanneau Swark I guess I guess that's how you say it and he was we'll go sort with of that. <laughs> yeah we'll go with that he's sort of admitting that Jaws 2 is just pretty much a cheesy horror film but he says you know basically yeah you know this isn't going to be any masterpiece he goes neither one of the Jaws movies is, are going to be studied years from now 
<laughs> like, wrong. <laughs> you know, wrong. So, but I mean, you know, so that, that that's a perfect example of what you're talking about. That in 78, a lot of people were fairly ready to dismiss Jaws. You know, it's like, oh, it's just a, you know, it's a big horror movie. And now you're like, well, no, no, people recognize it. It's one of the great films of all time. So, but in 78, he felt quite comfortable saying that. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I would have dismissed it as as cavalierly as that. But maybe he was just trying to. Uh to line his own movie up with the first one a little bit. I think so, yeah. So it's, it's an interesting quote, though. I never heard that one. My next note was the uh, closing 24 hours is like three weeks. <laughs> uh, we already talked about that a little bit. Uh, that And then that's the scene where we get uh, Quint. Oh, one of the great intros of all time. You know, that the sound of him scraping the chalkboard. You have everybody turning who's making that sound. And then the, then the, the camera tilts and people part and there he is sitting there. It's really one of the great all-time movie reveals. And and it's also, it's it's not the Indianapolis speech by any stretch, but it's also just a great intro speech. Yeah. Just the whole, you all know me? <laughs> yep. You know, it goes right into it. Yep. And what my notes were that he steals every scene he's in. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's weird to think how many people they went for for this movie before they landed on Robert Shaw. I mean, they wanted Lee Marvin and they wanted um, Sterling Sterl- Hayden. Hayden, both of whom would have been amazing. But Robert Shaw is so good that I would never change it. Well, the, the thing I never. came back to on that, because I was trying to picture him in my mind, and Lee Marvin was a great actor. And Sterling Hayden, I only know from The Godfather. Right. <laughs> but he was excellent in that. Yeah, he's so good in that. And I could picture either of them in the role, and it doesn't necessarily diminish the movie to any great extent, uh, assuming they weren't going to have the same lines, because obviously they wouldn't have the Indianapolis speech, since Robert Shaw actually participated in the writing right, of that. Right. But the thing that I was trying to think, what did Robert Shaw bring to this that I don't think I would have seen with either of them? And I think he brought actually a little bit of a whimsical nature to Quint. Just in the, in the way he, he kind of like makes fun of the chief a little bit. Uh, I, you ever start on a new job and you don't know what you're doing and there's like a, an old crotchety guy there. <laughs> and that's that brought, he, he evoked such feelings of that in the scene when, when Brody pulls the wrong rope and then Quint turns to him and says, next time chief you come to me, I'll tell you which rope to pull. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I, I don't know. He, he just brought so much to the character in, in like every line he delivered. Yeah, Robert Robert Shaw is. is I, I think it ended up fitting perfectly because I think that if it, Lee Marvin had done it, Lee Marvin was so powerful and so strong that I think he would have dominated the Brody character. And I think he just you would have been like, I feel like that when they all get on the boat together, and I mentioned this on on Film and Water, that it really is Kirk, Spock, and McCoy at that point, and they're all equal parts. And I think because. I, Robert Shaw is, you mentioned, he's like that crazy old man. He seems just nuts enough that I don't fully trust him. Yeah. He does some things that don't seem to make sense when he smashes the radio. You know, like his quest for vengeance against sharks is so strong that I think it's overridden his common sense. And I don't know if I would have bought that out of Lee Marvin. I think Lee Marvin, I would have been like, Lee Marvin can just kill that shark by himself. That's the thing. Lee Marvin. In, in the scene, in the scene, the, in Quint's final scene, if Lee Marvin was in, in the jaws, I wouldn't believe the, that the shark could pierce his skin. Exactly. Lee Marvin would have, like, I would have expected Lee Marvin to burst out of the shark, like, in 10 <laughs> minutes later, you know, just with, like, his knife in his teeth and stuff. So Robert Shaw was not quite that level of macho guy, at least from what I saw when I saw the movie. So it ended up working out that I think you had to demand it not diminish that's not the right term but like you had to kind of soften quint a little make him a little crazier a little 
less stable, less strong to give Brody more of a role. And that's the way it needed to be. So, yeah, it really did work out that Robert Shaw Robert is just perfect. I mean, he's just, you know, the, when the whole thing about, um, you know, like and he, the way he seems so perfect. So he, he's so um, like dead set against Hooper. Mm-hmm. Like he like kind of let that override him like that whole bit. You know, it's just it's yeah, it really worked out that they ended up getting Robert Shaw because it's just it, it's sort of like Superman where in the commentary I don't I don't want to take the show too far of course but in the commentary for Superman they talk about that for Miss Tessmacher they originally went for Anne Margaret and the Salkinds were like she's too expensive and then they went to Goldie Hawn and they were like she's too expensive so they had to kind of like go down to their third or fourth choice who was Valerie Perrine and Valerie Perrine was perfect in that role and you look at it and say yeah Goldie Hawn as Miss Tessmacher would have been too distracting she would have been too big of a star for that tiny a part so it worked out it worked out that it was Valerie Perrine it worked out that it wasn't their first choice and I'd say the same thing about Robert Shaw mm-hmm. yeah I, I agree it's I can't say that Lee Marvin or Sterling Hayden wouldn't have been terrific in the role but what I can say is Robert Shaw was terrific in the role. Yep. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly content with what we got. Yep. Uh, the next note I had was the scene with, when the two men are putting the holiday roast out on the, uh, on the, on the chain. <laughs> right. I think that's the first scene where we really start to get a feel as to the scale of this beast. That's interesting. Without ever seeing it. Yeah, um, yeah, we do. That, that's funny that you say that. I always kind of tend to forget that scene. Um, I mean, it's probably my least favorite scene in the movie. That's not saying much, though. I mean, it's like saying that's like the least favorite piece of pizza I ever had. You know, it's still pretty good. Uh, but well, unless I, unless you had Papa John's, in which case, well, there, well okay, that's a whole. Other let's thing. say okay. your least favorite slice of real pizza. Okay, there we go. Uh, my least favorite Bob Dylan song, if I may, if I may <laughs> okay, shamelessly go. plug my Bob Dylan podcast. Um, but yeah, no. Now that you've said it, and I'm thinking about it, that scene does give you the scope of how big a problem this is. Because these two jamokes think they're going to do it. And not only do they not capture the shark, the entire dock gets ripped into the water. So it's like everyone on this island is not going to be able to handle it. This is too big of a problem. And the, the scene has got a real Abbott and Costello vibe to it, the way <laughs> they just refuse to take it seriously. And then, you know, of course, they, get, they almost get killed. So, yeah, it really does give you that sense of, like, this is not something you people know how to handle. One, one thing about that scene that, to me, didn't really work, though, I'm, I'm okay. I was okay with the whole scene. And it, it, it is kind of not one of the most memorable things, like you said, and it's not necessarily one that you stick with. But I do like, again, that it shows you the scale of the problem. I didn't like the little tag online at the end because I think it just made too light of it. It, it gave you something where they showed you how serious it is. And then they ended with, can we go home now? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I didn't think that was necessary. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. That you almost you almost want to hear the Star Trek. Doo, 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 doo. <laughs> uh, then I one of the things, another thing on the DVD was they actually have uh, a cut scene where they're showing the basically the the actually when the, the the fishermen go out onto the water and they start fighting among themselves trying to find you know find their spot. And it just seemed like with if you've ever gone out on the sea, and I'm not a big fisherman, but I've been out enough times, there is so much open water, it's insane that I can't imagine that the water that the water is that that's you know small of an area for for these people not to be able to at least find you know a couple of hundred square feet around themselves to you know it's not like the shark we know the shark is in exactly this spot. We know right. he's in this general area, so you you know you wouldn't have to be on top of each other. So I could kind of understand why. 
that scene was cut. It just didn't really make sense. The thing about that scene that makes me nervous is one of the boats has a dog on the like the prow of the boat. And, like, the dog is not harnessed in. The dog is just standing on the prow of the boat. And I'm like, that dog is going to fall into the water. Like, because, like, everybody's boats are rocking. And I'm like, that makes me so nervous because I feel sorry for that dog. I'm like, that dog is going to fall in the water. It's going to get cut up by the 90 different boat propellers. Makes me very nervous to see. And well, you I, know, I, last week, it's, it's interesting you should bring up that point. Because last week, on the 3rd of July, I uh, we, we went out with friends who have a sailboat to see the sunset. And while we were in the dock area, we saw at least three boats with dogs hanging out on them. Oh. And the owner of the sailboat we were on said, oh, yeah, these dogs are on these boats from when they're puppies. They have better sea legs than most people you can imagine. And they, you know, they never fall in. And if they did fall in, you know, they swim. They, you know, they, when, when they're in the water, it's because they choose to be generally. So... Uh, it's just interesting that that point came up last week because I was looking at it and saying, "Wow, you know, how do you how do you deal with that dog on, on you know on your bow if there's a big wave?" It was like never a problem. He see you know he he doesn't bring his dog out, but he sees people who have been doing it since they were puppies, and it's never an issue. Well, that's good to know that in real life it's not. An issue. And what, what it does, of, like all those, you know, what it does is it adds a little, I guess, realism to that scene because people apparently do that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, this is one of the best set horror movies of all time in terms of it really feels i mean it's it's a real place with real little you know there's people that know each other and there's little i mean like there's that popeye looking guy that comes out at one point of the the the, the harbor master guy i mean mm -hmm. you know it's yeah this this film has wonderful little bits of set dressing and detail that you know make it that's what it's reason it's so much better than so many other movies it takes the time to do all that stuff although that that scene that you're talking about it does feature another wonderful piece of adr where you hear a guy go eight thousand dollars divided four ways is what like <laughs> not exactly the brightest people here on amityville that he can't figure out what eight thousand divided by four might be <laughs> Yeah, well, that's that's one thing that's made pretty clear is some of these uh, some of these people aren't the brightest bulbs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Then they catch that one shark, which is very large. Right. Uh, I think it's a Mako. Uh, <laughs> a what? <laughs> so, but that that's I mean that scene is is interesting because again, Mayor Vaughn is desperate to say there's no problem. So that's it, you know. Again, we've we, they've caught, what is it? We've caught a large predator that some you know supposedly supposedly attacked some uh, some. So they they still want to go with the boating accident argument. Yep. And then I think one of the more powerful scenes is at the end when Mrs. Kittner comes over and slaps Brody. Not so much that, but when she turns and walks away, and Mayor Vaughn says she's wrong, and Brody says no, she's not. Mm -hmm. And he knows inside that he's known all along that he didn't act strongly enough to prevent this from happening. Although the tide against him, even if even if he had acted stronger, that they probably would have done what they eventually do in Jaws too and dismiss him from his position. Yeah, I I always felt like Brody took that a little too much to heart because yeah, they overruled him. What's he supposed to do? But it helps as a good motivator, it, and it helps to bring the character down to a low point. And then, you know, it, then you bring in Hooper, and Hooper is the one who's talking, you know, more sense and stuff. So it makes sense thematically, but I never totally bought that he deserved that. because. Oh, no, no, no. I don't, I don't buy that he yeah. deserves it, and I don't yeah. buy that he could have done anything to stop it. But I right. do buy that in light of this 
child death and all the deaths that have occurred up to this point that he feels a deep, deep sense of responsibility for it, whether it's justified or not. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I think it's one of the most powerful scenes, because I think we're getting a glimpse into his soul right there. Yeah, yeah, he does take this very seriously. And he he knows that he probably let it go a little further. Like, he probably should have pushed a little harder at the meeting and stuff and whatever. And then that's all coming to to roost. And it's sort of funny that I remember hearing about that. That woman, the woman who played Mrs. Kinder, like, for decades afterwards, people would see her and they would ask to be slapped by her. (laughs) I hadn't heard that. Yeah. She, oh. she finally stopped doing it like a couple of years ago. She's like, I stopped doing it. But for years, she would do it. She would People would ask to be slapped, and she would slap them. See, that's something I can guarantee you I would not ask him to do. No, I wouldn't ask her to do that. I would if I, I don't think I'd even ask her. I'd, I'd, expect, I'd just give her like the thumbs up or something. I'd be like, oh, that's Mrs. Kidner. But I, you know, I'm not going to ask her to slap me. That's a bit No, I think if anything, I would just tell her uh, she did a wonderful job in that performance. And, yeah. and that I'm a huge, huge fan. She's in one of my favorite movies of all time. And I'd be yeah. happy to walk away then having let her know that. And that, that would be good enough. Yep. So I thought, I have a note here about the... Uh, the dinner with Hooper. And wonderful. I, I, yeah, the, the scene is wonderful, but you do see... I wonder if they're trying to hint a little bit about the affair that's in the book. Because mm. you do see almost a, not. I wouldn't go as far as saying chemistry between Ellen Brody and, and Hooper, but just kind of some playfulness. She laughs at his story really hard. Yeah. Like, she really... I think that's... I don't think they're trying to hint at the affair in the book. Thank goodness, because I was so glad that they took that part of the book. I mean, it's funny to think that in the book, Peter Benchley pictured, like, a Robert Redford type for Hooper, like a blonde Adonis, and then they cast, you know, fuzzy little gremlin Richard Dreyfuss. Who is, again, perfect in the role. Perfect in the role. I'm glad they cut all that out. I guess the way I tend to see that scene, because I want to see it that way, I don't want any hint of the affair, is that Brody is in a funk. Brody is just being, Brody is totally moping around, depressed, angry, miserable. And she is so desperate to try and connect that when Hooper comes in and is sort of light and frothy and funny, she's connecting with that. I mean, there's that line about where he's like, I'd like to speak to your husband. And she's like, yeah, so would I. Like, yeah, so, yeah, like I, he's he's uncommunicative. So I feel like she's overreacting almost to draw Brody out to kind of be like, hey, OK, lighten up a little, you know. I, I think that there again, you know, I said hints of the affair, I, but I don't think they're trying to show you the affair. I do think they're trying to hint at some marital problems. Hmm. Okay. In that scene and in the scene after the after the other attacks, when uh, when he he asks him to take the younger oh, the son back home, back home. Yeah, and she says yeah. back to New York, and he's like, no, here, and you could see there's a tension there between. Yep. Yeah. Those are the two scenes where I think they're just trying to show you, you know, it's not all happiness. You know, they're not they're not a Norman Rockwell painting. Yeah, I would absolutely uh, agree with that. Now, the scene when they go to Ben Gardner's boat and Hooper gets the tooth, which he then drops. The scene after that with Mayor Vaughn, I think, is one of the, <laughs> the best written exposition scenes I've ever seen. It is. It's fantastic. Spielberg's exposition scenes are great. I mean, that scene of the three of them in front of the sign is, to me, almost as good as the uh, government agents visiting Indy in Raiders of the Lost Ark, which yes. is my all-time favorite exposition scene ever in the history of movies. But that scene in front of the sign is so good. Just the way that Vaughn will not listen. And Hooper is trying so hard to be reasonable. And Vaughn's just having none of it. And all he can care about is those paint-happy bastards 
who uh, messed up the sign. A per- you marred a perfectly good public me- public uh, public uh, what's the word public what's the word public service message. I couldn't but blank that on that word. Uh, yeah, that scene is hilarious. We might, we might be able to save August. <laughs> yeah, that's Perfect. it's it's just terrific. And and again, you know, it's it's Brody trying to get through to the mayor and then telling Hooper, tell him about this, tell him about that, and it gets all his exposition in there. So just to give you again another feeling for the scale of what we're dealing with here. Yeah, I mean, you, Brody's got to be like, look, you're not, you don't have to believe me. I've got an expert, and you know, the expert is telling you, you know, no, the bite radius isn't the same. Uh, you know, that whole the whole bit, and you know, but the, he's still not going to listen. So yeah, that's a it's a wonderful. I love when Hooper gets so frustrated, just decides to just you know walk off, and he's laughing because he's just like, this is this guy's insane. I thought that was it's so great. But I, I also love the delivery of the line by Vaughn when he says, uh, you have the tooth? Where's the tooth? <laughs> and it's just, you, you don't have the tooth. <laughs> you know, like, like I'm not going to take you... F- I know that's also, you know, <laughs> you'd love to see them get, into, get yourself into the National Geographic. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I just love that, too, that that's Hooper's reasoning as he wants to get into it. Like, as if the tooth would really prove, prove anything particularly... Uh, you know, I mean, it doesn't really, I mean, I guess you could say, well, this tooth wouldn't fit in the face, in the mouth of the shark that we captured, but I don't, I think even if he'd had the tooth, I don't think Mayor Vaughn would have done anything with it. Oh, no, no, he just saw yeah. an opening to, yeah. to, to cut into the argument. Did they ever explain how Ben Gardner got killed? No, no, they like, never give I, you any, anything, they don't even really, I'm not even 100% sure they come out and say that that's Ben Gardner's head that bobs down, although you know it is. I think they just at some point say it's Ben Gardner's boat, and that's all they tell you. Well, I think Brody says you should have seen him. I think he says that to Mayor Vaughn when he talks about Ben Gardner's boat, and he says you should have seen him. And I always assume, well, that means you should have seen the corpse of Ben Gardner that we found. But how did Ben Gardner die? Because Ben Gardner obviously wasn't eaten by the shark because he's still in the boat. So, there, there, you know, there must have been something there that we've got. But it's fine. The mystery of it uh, is, is suitably, you know, weird and creepy. You're like, well, something else happened. Something happened to Ben Gardner that we don't know about. I guess we could suppose that the shark literally attacked the boat You're right. and bit a hole into it. Yeah, and maybe because that's, that's why the tooth was in there. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I guess I guess we need to get Rob Zombie to make a prequel to Jaws, which is just the story of Ben Gardner. I guess we need to do that. <laughs> yeah, I would not trust Rob Zombie to make. <laughs> I wouldn't expect a lot more than Jaws. Well, I, I might give him up to Jaws too, but I don't don't expect anything beyond that. So next we move over to the 4th of July, and I think that's a really powerful thing also, just the way uh, nobody is going in the water mm-hmm. until the mayor finally convinces that one guy <laughs> to go in. And Nobody's then, going in. Well, I just put on some suntan lotion, and, and I'm trying yeah. to get an even tan. Yeah. Hi, Larry. I love that. Yeah, and then the way they all meander in, so like, there's that one shot of them all looking at the water from the beach, like it, they've just been handed a death sentence. I love that. Oh, that's, as the as the terrific. four as the four of them are going, I assume that's supposed yeah. to be the grandchildren because they're an older couple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure the, yeah, yeah. They're they're minding the grandchildren for the day. But once once they go sentence. in. Everybody sees that as a sign that it's safe. Yep. It's almost the, you know, the people are sheep type theory. Yep. And and they all start running in. And it's the one thing I, I wonder, you know, I've overlooked it many times when I've watched it. But when I give it a lot of thought, I still wonder if people would all of a sudden be, you know, that quick to go in with reckless abandon. I mean, they, they don't just go into the water at that point. They go in and they start just, you know, making a ruckus. 
Yeah, I, I would have been like, I'm going to stay here on the beach. You guys have fun. I saw the movie and I would only stay in the beach. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep. As they finally go out on, on the ship, uh, I think we see a tremendous contrast between Quint, Hooper, and Brody. You know, Quint, Quint is, you know, totally old fashioned. Basically, it's like he's going to wrestle the shark with his bare hands to, to kill it. <laughs> Hooper's got all his high tech equipment that he's going with. And Brody is going in with Dramamine, zinc oxide, and Blistex. Yeah, <laughs> remember that stuff for your for your nose. Yeah, I like Ellen gets a great final scene. I think that was great the way that she leaves him. You know, where he's like, "Tell the kids I'm going fishing," and she she starts to walk away, and then she goes into a full run because she's so upset. I think she gets a great final scene. I, yeah. I think that's a really nice nice way to, to for her to exit the movie. Now, uh, at that point, when they take off from the dock. That's something that I don't think John Williams really gets credit for, because throughout the movie, you know, we've heard the the ominous Jaws theme, and everybody remembers that. But the the score at that point it changes from a horror theme to adventure music. Yep, yep. And it does so in a wonderful way. Like you know, you you could just sit and listen to that score, and it's terrific. You don't have to even have the movie on. And and I think you know, it's just yet another example of the brilliance of John Williams there. Yeah, I mean it's it's amazing how well uh, how cleanly the movie is is cleaved in two. The first, it's literally I think an hour when that you know an hour into the movie when that scene starts and the movie shifts from becoming a horror movie to an adventure movie and the colors are I don't think they the colors change necessarily but because you're on the open sea I think you notice them more. The colors seem slightly desaturated and to me they look like all the scenes in the second of the movie look like a men's adventure cover you know like a pulp thing of like three men take on a giant beast you know they just had and, and williams's music is perfect for that that slightly nautical kind of it's it's lighthearted a little yeah uh, it's amazing amazing and one thing i want to mention before we get off this that scene of like just where they're all taking off for the first time and quint says the bit about the mary lee here lies mary lee who died at the age of 103 blah blah blah, blah. he apparently said as that same exact uh, little ditty in another movie called The Swashbuckler. Oh wow! I didn't know. And that. I've never, I've never seen Swashbuckler. I've really never even heard of it. But he, he literally says it, and I'm like, man, that would make a great mash cut, you know, on YouTube of somebody take both those scenes of the same actor saying the same dialogue and putting them together. I would love to see what that looks like. But I've never seen Swashbuckler, and I've, of course, never seen the scene. But he literally says it, and apparently, when he he made that up on the spot. And Spielberg was like, I love it, but we have to pay whoever wrote that. And he goes, no, 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 no. I found it on a grave marker in Ireland. So we're going to have to pay anybody. They're like, oh, okay, great. <laughs> Even better. Yeah, then, then we go to possibly the most famous scene in the, in the movie, the uh, Indianapolis. Yeah. And I, I don't have a lot to say about that that hasn't been said already because that's been dissected to such an extent. I think it's just one of the, the classic movie scenes of all time. It's It's... It's it's right there with you know Marlon Brando in on a water on the waterfront or uh, you know Jack Nicholson in a few good men just just one of the most memorable moments in movie history to me. Yeah, the music is great again with John Williams that eerie that I'm I'm ruining it here by trying to do it but it's <laughs> it's yeah and the fact that the camera just slowly pans in on Quint and the fact that the story comes out of such a lighthearted moment where they're all bonding and then it turns dark you know it turns mega dark. Uh, and then you get like, okay, this is why Quinn hates sharks so much. There you go. I get, yeah, totally get it. And it's flawlessly delivered. And again, it's one of those things where I think it, when it was originally written, it was like five pages 
and then they cut it down and cut it down and then Robert Shaw got his hands on it as you mentioned and he cut it down to you know like a page and a half and it's just perfect because again you don't you know you you get to imagine it all the the horror of you know being in a circle with your mates and you, you lean over you know, you reach over to your buddy and your buddy's been dead and you don't even notice it it's 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 perfect it's absolutely perfect and about 20 years ago i was inspired by that scene and i sat down and read a book about the indianapolis which i couldn't tell you too many of the details that are beyond what robert Shaw told us but i did find it fascinating for a time yeah Just, and i was inspired purely by that scene yeah, and I didn't know, I think when I saw the movie, I probably wouldn't have known or cared that that was a real thing. I just thought it was assumed it was made up, you know, and then I got a little older, and I'm like, oh, no, that really, that really happened. Oh, man, that's, I mean, they have flirted with making a movie about that, about the Indianapolis, and at one point, they even talked about making a Jaws prequel that was going to be Quint on the Indianapolis. Uh, of course, it never went anywhere, but that's, they have flirted with that idea over the years. I think they'd be better off just making a movie about the Indianapolis and leaving Quint off of it because yeah. Yeah. Uh, it just could be a little too cheesy otherwise. Yep, 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 yep. So at this point in the movie, I feel like we kind of get, I had never considered it until I heard you mention it on your prior show, but I think this is where we almost get kind of that Spock, uh, McCoy, uh, Kirk relationship, not quite exactly the way they are there, but I think we get three distinct motivations for our three characters. And I think from this point forward, Quint is Captain Ahab. Yeah, he's pure vengeance at this point. He just wants to kill the shark because he's the shark and he wants to kill it. Brody is looking to fix a problem. You yeah, know, and, and he doesn't really job. care how it's done. He just no. cares that it's done. Yep, that's why the whole yeah. you're going to need a bigger boat thing, and that's why yep. he's trying to call the Coast Guard to get more help help yep. in there. Yep, and then and Hooper doesn't even necessarily want to kill it. He wants to study it and do what he can. Uh, and and Hooper, yeah. Hooper is just gleeful yeah. over, over getting the chance to do what he's doing. And, and I think that that's really demonstrated when he gives the, oh, boys. Yeah. <laughs> and he calls it darling at one point. He's like, come on, darling, you're beautiful. You know, you're like, really? Really, Hooper? Okay, okay. So it's it's just you know they, I think their motivations kind of carry through from this point forward of uh, and you, you see it guiding their actions a lot and and I guess this is the point where the story starts to get a little unbelievable because the shark starts to seem to have it out for them yeah <laughs> but it's it, a very special shark it's well it goes to to the ending of the movie and the quote Spielberg gave about that but I think you can believe or you can apply what his logic was at the end of the movie, to this point as well, when they talked about how the shark was going to be killed at the end. Uh, so I think it was Peter Benchley came to him and said, that's totally unrealistic, that could never happen. And he said, it's a two-hour movie, and if I still have them at this point, they're going to accept whatever I do. Yeah, this this shark, it, yeah, I mean, it's it's not, it's unrealistic, but it's not impossible that for whatever reason, this shark is like, okay, these guys are my meal, and I'm going to just keep hunting them uh, until I get it. And yeah, it's unrealistic. They would probably, as, as Andrew Thaler, who was my guest on Film and Water said, a shark is 99% likely to just want to leave you alone because sharks are just not familiar with humans and they don't seem like food and they seem weird and odd and they don't want to bother. So they would not, this shark would not just keep circling and circling, but you know what? This shark's unique. This is a very unique, very pissed off shark. And the shark has nothing better to do than to go after the guts. So that's what it does. Yeah. And, and, and again, by this, by this time in the movie, you're so invested in it that you're, you're willing to accept that the shark is, you know, the shark is basically the shark version of Quint. Yeah. Yeah. It's totally, you, you are completely on board, no pun intended. And so therefore it's fine. So, I mean, Quint, Quint definitely gets 
irrational at this point, smashing the radio. And, you know, I was so, I get so pulled into this movie that this is the point where my notes effectively end. Just (laughs) because at this point I can't take notes anymore. I just watch. I like it when Quint, he doesn't say it, but he does it through his actions where he eventually starts listening to Hooper. And after they try and subdue the shark and it doesn't work. And then he's like, Hooper! (laughs) <laughs> what's in these? What's in this kid? You know, what's in this? Uh, this needle of yours? Like, even he's like, okay, we are okay. Even I'm a little outclassed here. I love that he turns to Hooper in that in that moment. He kind of he tries to cover it up through humor by saying so jovially, Hoopa! you know. And then who? I love that Richard Garvey is so funny in this movie. I love the whole crushing the paper cup and doing the uh, the tongue out wagging this thing and then doing the arm gestures. Like, I love all that stuff is so well done. Yeah, I I just I just you know earlier on it's you know. You go in the cage goes in the water. You go in the cage. Sharks in the water. <laughs> yeah, it's, he really explains it like, okay, it's pretty. I mean, Hooper is pretty reckless for a science guy. I mean, he went into the water at night to look at Ben Gardner's boat, which I never would have done in a bajillion years. Uh, you know, although I wouldn't be doing any of the things that Hooper did because Hooper's rich, as we established. Uh, I would just be living a life of luxury. I wouldn't be risking my life on sharks. But then the fact that he's willing to put himself in the cage is like, are you, do you have a death wish? What is the matter with you? And that's another thing. We mentioned this on, on Film and Water. Like this movie back ended into being a better movie because it was only because they didn't get the footage they needed of the Hooper stand-in getting killed that Hooper ended up living. The screenplay had to be changed, so Hooper lived. And the movie's much better for Hooper living at the end. Yeah, there there was no reason to kill him off as far as dramatically going, unless you're saying, you know, he had a death wish and that's, you know, he he courted danger just a little too much. But I, I don't think we're supposed to get any great lesson from this movie, so I don't think you needed to do that. Yeah, it's it, the, the, the movie has a grim ending and that Quint gets it and gets it so explicitly, but he's meant to get it because he is in a, he's in a death spiral with these sharks. But the, the movie's ending with Brody and Hooper is perfect. Now, the scene when he's in the cage and the shark is attacking and you, you get a couple of close-ups of his eyes, that is not Richard Dreyfus. Right, that's another guy. Which is, you you wouldn't expect that to be the case on a close up of the of the of the person's face, but that that is in fact not Richard Dreyfus, which I find amazing. Yeah, it goes by so fast. You don't even. I, I never know. I've never noticed that. Even though even though I know to look for it, I could never tell. Yeah, I, I have specifically looked and tried to see. You know, can I see the differences? And they had somebody who looked enough like him, and you know, it's like you say, it's a quick enough scene, and you're really getting a close up of the mask with just eyes behind it. Yeah. So you're able, they, were, they were able to get away with it. And ultimately, the final resolution, you know, you do have the scene early on when he accidentally releases the gas tanks and Hooper, you know, screams at him about it. And that's effectively setting up Chekhov's gun. Right. Because that ends up being how he finally, dis, you know, disposes of the shark, which again, you know, that eventually admits that that, that could never really happen. Uh, and just just even conceptually, if it could happen, the idea that he'd be able to get that shot off and hit that that air tank is just I, you know, kind well, of unbelievable. I, yeah, well, but I do love that he misses like five times. Uh, I mean, that's I mean, I know that's to build tension, but at least they do show him missing a bunch of times. Unlike he gets it. The, I mean, I don't fully understand why it wouldn't work. That's a, that's a compressed air tank, which is those things are explosive. So if you shot it with a bullet, wouldn't it explode? I don't understand the physics of that. Why wouldn't it work? I, well, I think I think the actual 
thought process is that the shark would never just leave it hanging out of its mouth. Like okay, that. all right. Well, but that I don't I know. Can... Maybe maybe it is just the physics of the, the bullet causing the thing to explode. Okay. If you believe the earlier dialogue when it just falls on the ground and he's concerned that it could explode then i think a bullet would make it explode if you both you know if right. it follows through right 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 yeah i don't I, I don't know it doesn't seem that implausible to me it doesn't jump out of me as like oh come on it's no just, me neither you know, i'm just i'm just taking yeah. what eventually said that is, yeah yeah <laughs> i'm taking that as gospel whether or not it is i'm sure he lived with it when as the checks came rolling in he was like i have to yeah i think i'm sure he dealt with it and then uh Basically, they, they grab on a piece of the, the boat with the barrels on it, and they head for home. Well, before we do that, we got to talk about Quint. I'm sorry. we got to talk about it a the, little the bit. The death scene? His death That death scene is so... I mean, for a movie that gets so much mileage out of not showing the shark, and then it just flat out shows the shark. And I don't know. Some people laugh at that puppet. They think it doesn't look realistic. To me, it's terrifying. It, there's something so just so explicit, and then that you're watching Brody see it. And Brody has to sit there and watch this guy. And he's just, and again, bro, like uh, Quint lives long enough to fully understand what's happening to him, which is to me the most, the, the horror is that it goes on and on and on and on. And he's stabbing and stabbing and the shark is just, not, and then it finally does that one crunch and that's it. But it just, it goes on so long that I just remember being like a little kid, just I chilling my eyes. It was so, it was just so awful. <laughs> well, it is since they did edit out that earlier scene, it is the most graphic of the shark attack scenes. Right. I good. See, the best for last. Perfect. Mm-hmm. And I guess it would have been fitting if somehow Quint's death did play into the ultimate demise of the shark. That would have been more, more poetic. I could see that, yeah. But the lack of that doesn't hurt it as far as I'm concerned. It, I mean, it pushes Brody to the limit and then literally in Figuratively, I mean, he's on he's on the the the, uh, the antenna or whatever it is or the the mast and it's sinking into the water. He's run out. I mean, he there's no one left for the shark to get but Brody. So it leaves Brody in that state of like complete vulnerability. All he's got left is a rifle, and you know he's slowly sinking into the water. So it, it does you know it, it does ratchet up the tension of there's nothing left between the shark and Brody at that point. There's ne- you know Brody is next because mm-hmm. everything else has been stripped away. Then when Richard Dreyfus comes up from the bottom and just says Quint and he shakes his head no. Yeah. And I, I think there's almost an acceptance by the characters of Quint would have wanted if he was gonna go, that's the way he would have wanted to go. Maybe. Ugh. Ugh. I'm I'm getting shit the shivers thinking about it. <laughs> well, it just shows how how great this movie is that what forty years later, it's still giving you shivers. Yeah, when the blood shoots out of his mouth. Oh, my God. And, you know, even though they've done sequels, which we will unfortunately have to get to, when they Well, we're, we're going the... to be brief on them. This was a yeah. long discussion. We'll go when brief they, on those. When they arrive on the beach, I want the movie to keep going. You know, like, I even though there's no more story left, I want to follow Brody and Quint. And, uh, not Quint, Brody and, and Hooper. Um, I want the movie to keep going even though i've seen it a thousand times and I, I know where it ends i still want the movie to just keep going and following them and to me that's the mark of such a great movie is that you just i just want to see i just want to hang out with these characters i just want i want to be sitting there watching brody and hooper tell everybody what happened like that to me is interesting and i actually thought ironically enough like i think you could have made a jaws sequel that could have been effective if you had followed hooper not Brody. Now I know Brody's your main character, but to me, the you, you know the idea of and as we'll see in Jaws two, you know it's another shark in Amity. There's diminishing returns, but to me, I would have I could have lived to see another whole movie of Hooper 
going out and having shark adventures. I think that might have been really interesting. I, th- I think you may you may be onto something there because I think you could have eliminated it being a little bit more of the same, only not as good. Right. You could have done a whole different thing with it. You could have made a completely different sequel, uh, but still have done Jaws 2. You still call it Jaws 2, and it's Hooper, you know, runs into another shark, and it's a completely different situation. But eh, they didn't want to do that. Well, I mean, I guess you know, now you're talking business decisions as opposed to creative decisions. And I think frequently uh, studios think that the audience isn't going to want it if it's not more of the same. Yep. Yep. And and what you're suggesting, I think, would have been a superior movie, but it may not have had the same box office appeal. Yeah, no, I'm sure that's what it was. Well, I'm sure they looked at it as Roy Scheider. Roy Scheider's the main character, so we got to have Roy Scheider again. Well, if we have Roy Scheider, then we got to have him in Amity. And if we have Amity, then we're going to have Ellen Brody, and we're going to have the mayor. And yeah, you're just, you know, it really is just like, let's just do the same movie over again. And that's a good point for us to shift into Jaws 2. But I think before we do that, we should just give some some final thoughts on Jaws. And as I said, for me, there's no question this is one of my top 10 movies of all time. Where it falls on that top 10 is probably different depending on my mood any given day. But I think consistently it's always going to be on that list. Yeah, I put it on my top 10 or top 15. And it's a movie that, and I said this on uh, my show, is that there are movies on my top 10, top 15 that I quote unquote like more than Jaws that are maybe higher on the list. But those are movies that I don't necessarily watch as much. But Jaws is a movie that I never tire of watching. I watch it every year, minimal, minimum, sometimes more than that. And the thought that I would never see Jaws again would make me very sad. You know, there are other movies that it's like, if I never saw this again, I'd be like, okay, you know, I'd be sad, but not that big of a deal. But I want to relive that adventure on a pretty regular basis. And so, yeah, it just, it holds up that well. It just holds up to repeat and repeat and repeat viewing. And there's a handful of movies that I would consider to be perfect movies that you really can't improve upon them to speak of. I mean, we've hit a couple of nitpicks in this discussion where, oh, maybe they could have done this, maybe they could have done that. I don't know that they would have made the movie better, just, you know, for conversation purposes. They're interesting to think about, but I don't know that they would have made the movie better. I consider this to be a perfect movie. And one movie that comes to mind off the top of my head is another Steven Spielberg movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, is another one that I consider to be a perfect movie. Absolutely. I agree with Yes, I agree with all of that. They're, it's amazing that they both came from the same guy. I think they are both flawless movies. So, that said, let's go to a movie with some flaws in it. <laughs> Jaws 2. The terror continues. In all the vast and unknown depths of the ocean, how could there have been only one? Are you serious? Roy Scheider. I almost did my dad. The whole beach looks incredible. Lorraine Gary. And Murray Hamilton. Look at this. That's a shark. Look, Brody, you started a panic on a public beach. 
Now, what if somebody decides to sue us? That's a shock. Did you ever stop to think about that? And I know what a shark looks like because I've seen one up close. And you better do something about this one because I don't intend to go through that hell again. Don't press it this time. Mike is out there. None of man's fantasies of evil can compare with the reality of Jaws. When, when did you see Jaws 2 for the first time? In the theater. I saw it in the theater, and it came out in 78, I believe. So I would have been seven. I remember what mall we were at. I remember my dad and I and my sister went to see it, and I, I, I remember. It's funny. I have very vivid memories of it. And I remember thinking it was pretty good. I've seen it again since, and, you know, I uh, I, I look at Jaws 2 the way I kind of look at, at um, Ghostbusters 2, is that I think that, I think that both those movies – uh, are by themselves not bad movies like you know definitely flawed and but but not terrible but when you compare them to the originals they look you know the chasm is great and that's sort of the problem i think if jaws 2 had been an original movie people would have been like oh that's a, actually a pretty good movie but it, it can't help but look you know bad in comparison to what to what it's a sequel of because you know it's a master the first one's a masterpiece the second one is not a masterpiece the second one is much more of a straight ahead horror movie with people getting picked off and you know some side characters being elevated to higher you know more screen time that they didn't necessarily need and they unfortunately you don't have hooper you don't have quint and you've replaced them with a bunch of screaming teenagers who i all just wanted to see get chomped by the shark so (laughs) it's i think it's a perfectly fine horror movie and it's no more than that i can't disagree with anything you said about it now the first time i saw it was probably late in the summer of 78 so it came out in june and i saw it in a double feature with jaws and jaws 2 Ah. and it probably was hurt somewhat by seeing it that way because i saw the great version of it and then i saw the pedestrian version of it for lack of a better term uh yeah, it's, it's it's a perfectly serviceable horror movie, but most of the higher quality moments in Jaws 2 are just recreations of things that they did in Jaws and better. Yeah, it doesn't go for mystery at all. I mean, there's many more explicit scenes of the shark popping out and eating people and just crunching down on them, which, again, if you're watching it for the pure sensation of watching a horror movie, then it works. I mean, there's, there's a shot of a teenager who gets it while another kid is watching, and that's, like, really, really horrible. But you can't help but get frustrated at that. Like the mayor and everybody's like, they don't believe Brody. And you're like, what do you need? Didn't you just live through the first movie? Trust this guy. It's you you just get some, and both Ellen Brody and mayor Vaughn get, get elevated to supporting characters. Like they're basically the second and third builds and they don't need it. The audience didn't need more mayor Vaughn. They didn't need more Ellen Brody. And so the fact that they didn't bother to kind of replace Hooper and Quint with more interesting characters, they just elevated some of the other ones. I, to me, it really hurts. I don't. Mayor Vaughn doesn't need that much screen time. Well, Mayor Vaughn, as as we discussed, I thought he he had his story arc already. Yep. And to bring him out now and have him be back in the role of denial just really makes no sense at all to me. And apparently, there was either a deleted scene or an unfilmed scene. I'm not sure which it was. Uh, that would have been better, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, in this, 
when when they relieve Brody of his responsibilities as police commissioner, there was apparently going to be a scene where Mayor Vaughn was the one dissenting voice who was standing up for Brody and saying that he was doing his job correctly. Hmm. And I think that would have been much more true to the character and where he's come with his story arc. Well, I know that it was a very troubled production because the original director, John Lee Hancock, I think, um, originally wanted much more of like a drama because you were supposed to see that Amity was a, a completely destroyed town in the effect after the effects of Jaws. Yeah, they wanted it to be like almost like a ghost resort community. Yeah, you can just hear the Bruce Springsteen song playing in the background, and and you know, and apparently they shot some stuff, and then Universal said, no, 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 that's way too brainy. We need more of just a straight-ahead shark chomping people. So he got fired, and they brought in uh, Jeannot Swark, who turned it into just a straight horror movie. And, you know, it just it took out all that meat. Now, I don't know if necessarily anybody wanted to see that, a drama about the, thing, the, the town, but it sounds like it would have been a little more interesting. Instead, yeah, you're right, Mayor Vaughn has an arc, and it's a perfect arc, and then they just he just starts over. Yeah, they just abandoned it. Yeah, and it's just kind of dumb. And the other problem is you had Roy Scheider who did not want to be there. He was he was roped into it because of a contract. He owed Universal a movie. He didn't want to do it, and he wanted to get out of his contract. And they were like, "Well, you owe us a movie. Do Jaws too." I think and he I think he actually owed them two movies. Two movies, maybe. And okay. they said, "If you do Jaws two, we'll count that as fulfilling your obligation." Oh, okay. Well, there you go. So, he, but he was miserable. He and may have he been miserable, but I didn't think he turned in a bad performance. I've heard people say that they thought he mailed it in, and I I didn't really think so. I think, I think he did okay. his best with what he had to work with. Yeah, I think he's okay, but to me, he looks stranded. And I think that the character is stranded. I, I can't help but think that Roy Scheider had a good time hanging out with Richard Dreyfuss and Robert Shaw. And now he's, now he's not. You know, Now he's got to basically save a bunch of dumbass teenagers. That's the other thing. This teenagers, man, they spend the whole movie just screaming at one another for like an hour straight. It's just them yelling. And that's you, at a certain point, you're like, oh, my God, just die already, you stupid. The best, although the best effect. I do have to say, when I was a kid, I was terrified of the idea. The um, the rescue chopper guy. Oh, when it takes when, when they take the, the pontoon the, chopper into yeah, the water. And the shark drags the helicopter into the water. As a kid, I was like, "Oh my god!" Like that was really terrifying. I have to admit. I it may have been terrifying, but as an adult looking at it, it's kind of campy. Oh, it's ridiculous. You're like, come on, what is this? The shark can't do that. But the idea that, like, the chopper blades go flying, like, that's pretty, you know, that's pretty horrific. But, oh, yeah. yeah it, it's... I'll, I'll give it I'll give it horrific. Now, apparently, again, I'm, I'm off Wikipedia here, so I take everything with somewhat of a grain of salt. But uh, apparently Roy Scheider was supposed to play the John Savage role in the movie The Deer Hunter. And, right, right. And for reasons, some sort of creative differences, he quit that. And that, that's what made him available to do this. Oh, that's a shame. So I'm sure he, when he looked back on his career, uh, I'm sure he thought, yeah, I kind of wish I did the deer hunter. Before I forget this, i got to give you a little fun fact to just cross over our podcast here. Uh, the guy who plays uh, Roy Scheider's, Brody's assistant, what's his name? What's that character's name? I forget his name. The, the sheriff. Not the sheriff, but like the, the, deputy. the deputy. Yeah. The deputy. I forget. I can't, I'm blanking on the character's name. But anyway, that actor is Jeff Kramer. 
And he later went on to, I mean, he has a big part in Jaws 2. Again, another character you didn't need to see that much of, and then he gets way more to do with Jaws 2. He ended up kind of getting out of acting and going into the music producing business. And he is now, and I think to this day, like Bob Dylan's manager. Oh, wow. Which is like, that's the craziest like career path I've ever heard. But that's, <laughs> that's, who, that's who he is. He produced, if you go, go look him up on IMDb, he's listed as a producer of the Bob Dylan 30th anniversary concert, which of course I attended because I never fail to mention that. And like he went on to like to have a career with Dylan. And I think as far as I know, he is still like maybe not his manager, but like one of his management. And like I've heard Dylan credit him and like a speech and stuff. Like I want to thank so and so so and so Jeff Kramer. And I'm like, that's the guy from Jaws. So <laughs> That's that is a very good fun fact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What an interesting life that guy's led. He played uh, Deputy Len Hendricks. Okay, I Hendricks. I heard they do say the name. And of course, the 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 most famous thing about Hendricks is we do know that he has bad printing. We know. Yes, he he, no, he can't do the signs. Bad handwriting. Let Polly do the signs. (laughs) How how nobody. (laughs) ever opened a store called Polly Printing with the with the catchphrase, let Polly do the printing. I don't know. That seems like <laughs> that you're leaving money on the table. So what I'm going to tell you uh, again off Wikipedia, the budget for this movie was $20 million. Oof. What do you think the box office was? And they give two uh, numbers, so I assume, I, I'm assuming it's some sort of estimate because they're too close in number to be domestic and, and overseas. Okay. Uh, well, I, I do know that Jaws 2 was a big, big hit. It was a huge hit, actually. Uh, so it probably, I don't know, I'm going to get wrong. I'm going to get this wrong again. Like, let's say $150 million. You're far closer than you were on uh Okay, well, Jaws. it would have to be almost. It gives the range of 187.9 to 208.9. That's astounding. I mean, that is, that's a ton of money. That is a ton. Isn't it funny, though, too, that Jaws was the number one box office movie of all time until it was replaced by Star Wars? And then for the while, Jaws 2, I think, was the number one movie of all time, or for the year, replaced by Empire Strikes Back. So George Lucas was constantly coming in and taking over Spielberg's shark movies. <laughs> okay, apparently, I'm just looking. Apparently, the references are from two different sources. That's why they gave okay. two numbers. Okay. One is from a source called The Numbers. And the other is from a source called Box Office Mojo. Okay, I think Box Office Mojo is pretty pretty um, reliable. Yeah, I mean for all the the you know the the, the bad notices that Jaws two gets that it gets lumped in with the other sequels, it was a massive hit. It was a ma- it was a huge hit. So you know, and they did all the merchandising because all the merchandising you see from Jaws does not come from Jaws. It comes from Jaws two because they didn't know that the first movie was going to be that kind of a hit. And they didn't know they could merchandise it. So when the second one came around they did as i mentioned a little while ago the the marvel adaptation they did uh the the t-shirts and all sorts of stuff so they they you know they knew they had a you know something you could drain you know money from yeah and ultimately uh the more memorable things about this movie you know you talked about the teenagers and when this came out i would have been 14 years old 15 years old you were right in that right in that wheel and they had a lot of very pretty young girls in there (laughs) So I would say that was probably the most memorable thing about it to me. They had Miss Amity. The one girl gets chomped, like right on screen, which is really grotesque. That's like, There's I mean, the one girl, and I don't recall the character's name, who has her cousin who's flirting with Mike. Okay. And I think she's the one who gets chomped. Yeah, it's really great. It's, it's Again, if you just want a horror movie scare, it's a good horror movie scare because you're just seeing this massive thing come out and just swallow this, this poor person. And it's like, oh, man, ugh. I'm I'm a big fan of sequels of movies that I like because I like to revisit 
characters and go back to them. And even if the sequel isn't up to the same level, I can usually accept it and enjoy it on its, you know, for what it is. But this is one I got to say, it really didn't add anything to it as far as I was concerned. Right. It didn't give me an, it didn't give me that same feeling that it gave me in the first movie. And I didn't feel like I was visiting with old friends. Yeah. Even, even though we have, you know, Chief Brody and Ellen. And apparently, yeah. originally, some one of the producers, I think one of the producers was married to Lorraine Gary. The, the head of the studio, Sid Sheinberg. Okay, yeah. and, and he, he wanted her on the final, uh, the final shark attack. He wanted her to be one of the heroes of that scene. Wow. Oh, boy. Yeah, it's, 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 like I said, it's a perfectly serviceable horror movie. And, and, and absent the context of the Jaws, I think it probably would be remembered more fondly. And the poster's great. The girl in the, girl in the bikini, uh, water serving with the shark behind her. Like, that's a great image and stuff like that. So Also you know, a, great, a great tagline of just when you thought it was safe to go back. Yeah, and- that is. That is, that's it, that is. That is a great one. And it's good. People responded. My dad took me to it, and I remember liking it, watching the shark get electrocuted when it eats the power line. Like, that was pretty cool. So, you know, I dug it. You know, I got older. I'm like, it can't hold a candle to the original, but, you know, it's got some things to it. And and we'll, we'll I'll give you my uh, take on, you know, we talked about how the rating system would be for the show. Uh, if I was rating Jaws 2, I'd have to write, rank it as Jaws 3. <laughs> you know, a perfectly right. serviceable movie that you can sit and watch, but nothing special. Okay. Jaws 3 doesn't rank that high. No, it does not. (laughs) So we might as well move on to Jaws 3 at this point. A creature alive today has survived millions of years of evolution. It lives to kill a mindless eating machine that will attack and devour anything. One terrified you like nothing you have ever experienced when it captured your imagination and tapped your fear like no movie before it then just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water two continued the legend and spread the fear next summer nature's most terrifying creature takes on an all-new dimension in an all-new adventure and for the first time the terror of Jaws will not stop at the edge of the screen. Jaws 3D. The third dimension is terror. Now, do you have stronger feelings against uh, saying from a negative point of view Jaws 3 or Jaws the Revenge okay now this is this is why I'm here this is this whole show here because in, in anticipation of being on this I rewatched Jaws 3 and Jaws 4 the things I do, as did I the things I do for this for podcasting I now I had always lived with the memory and the assumption that the Jaws movies in terms of their quality go on a straight downward line and it's a pretty steep line you know jaws one to jaws two big drop jaws two to jaws three big drop was jaws three to jaws four big drop which which means jaws four is by far the worst but having rewatched jaws three and jaws four i gotta say i don't know if i'm i don't know if i can say jaws three is a better movie than jaws four jaws three is terrible it is a <laughs> terrible movie and there are things about jaws four that i think are better than jaws three i think jaws four is sillier and stupider and more shameless in its attempt to rip off the original film 
But Jaws 3 is absolutely terrible. I mean, it to me, it does not feel remotely like the Jaws movies. It feels like a bunch of amateurs slipped in, made a movie, and they just slapped the Jaws name on it. I mean, from the cruddy 3D to the fact that the movie just sort of meanders around and has no clear through line through this final slow-mo shot of Dennis <laughs> Quaid and Bess Armstrong and Louis Gossett Jr. going like, just as the shark breaks through this glass, it is... Oh, oh my God, Jaws 3 is terrible. Oh, and Simon McCorkendale, like, he, he's the guy you get when you can't get your first, like, six British choices. Say only six? Yeah, I'm being generous. Oh, my God. The, Jaws 3 is terrible. It's absolutely... It, and you know, it's funny. I'm sorry, I don't mean to hijack this. Hijack no, go, please but, go. Run with but, it. But, like, it was originally supposed to be a parody movie. Yeah, it was it Jaws was, 3, people was nothing. Right, and they wanted Joe Dante to do it and apparently spielberg was like you better not do that or something he really like threw a bit about it so they just said okay we'll just make a real movie but that would have been a much better movie to make a parody movie than, than the garbage that they ended up coming up with you know what i think the tagline should have been for jaws 3d don't go see this i think the tagline should have been shame on me because <laughs> jaws 2 was shame on you <laughs> they fooled me once but I went to the movies like an idiot and saw this one. I did too. My dad took me to it. I was, you know, I, I saw every, I was like, hey, it's a Jaws movie. I want to see it. My poor father must have been like, okay, all right. Well, this this was during the brief resurgence of 3D movies. Yeah. Uh, Friday the 13th Part 3, which I also saw in the movies. <laughs> and Amityville 3D, which I did not <laughs> see in the movies. <laughs> Space Hunter, Adventures in the Forbidden Zone. And and when I was watching this and I posted something on Facebook about it, uh, Chris Honeywell and Scott Gardner started reminiscing about the uh, 3D glasses that had the little shark head on them. Oh, wow. I don't remember those. I, don't, I didn't remember it either until they said it, but then one of them found it and posted a picture of it, so it was kind of kitschy. You know a movie is desperate that went on the poster, which this does, it says all new. Yeah. Like, yeah, I assume that when I'm going to see a movie that you're showing me all new footage. I'm not expecting to see a greatest hits compilation of previous Jaws films. So, you know, you know you're desperate when that's your selling point. Hey, it's new footage at least. You, well, know, you, I just... you know how bad this movie is? It's so bad that you have Dennis Quaid, Bess Armstrong, and Lou Gossett Jr., all of whom I consider to be very, very charismatic actors, and it sucked. It's awful. They, just... they, they could not save anything in this movie i wonder if quaid and gossett talked about making jaws 3 while they were making enemy mine you did know, that they predate were, this yeah enemy mine is 85 this is 83 so they must have been like boy that was a stinker huh anyway let's get let's get this movie done yeah that <laughs> jaws 3 is just it's so stupid the jaws the, the shark wanders into like a sea world kind of thing how does it, it get into sea world it, it well the, like it it it's like it's a baby, the, the it's a mother shark, and the baby shark dies, so it wanders in through this gate. It's the effects are absolutely awful. Like they look so so bad. Again, the plot you can't like it just meanders. There's lots of scenes of the two Brody children now that they're grown up and they're like frolicking around with these girls. Leah Thompson is in this movie. Mm -hmm. it, it's oh my, I had forgotten how terrible Jaws three. And it was directed by Joe Alves. Alves, uh, Alves did. Yeah. Uh, I think it was like the technical advisor or the special effects supervisor on the original Jaws. So I guess they felt like they were... As, also the Sugarland Express, apparently. Okay, right. He's worked with Spielberg. So they felt like, I guess, you know, oh, that's a through line. But it's the, you know, I think it's the only film he's ever directed because he had clearly had no idea what he's doing. Yeah, I, I would it's, tend it's to agree with you. There, there, there is nothing about this story that's compelling. There's nothing nope. about the characters that are compelling. There's nothing about the action scenes that are compelling. There's nothing about the cinematography that's compelling. And I could go on. <laughs> yeah. 
It is a really, <laughs> really the things that I'm, it lacks. I'm kind of like I guess happy that you know I watched them again just so I could have a good refresher of because I really did think oh yeah Jaws three is not you know not good but it's not a nightmare like Jaws four and then when I watched them and I watched them the same day and I was like oh my god I had forgotten this this movie is just awful. So just what do you awful. think this one costs to make? Uh, well, if Joe's two cost twenty, I I bet you, I'm gonna bet you that didn't, this didn't cost a lot more because this looks like it was done on the cheap. So I'm gonna say it was probably cost the same budget, so we're like twenty. All right. Well, they they list the budget as eighteen. There you go. So there you're you you're pretty pretty close to on the money there. What do you think the box office was? I knew this was not a big hit. I think I think it was like say fifty. All right. Well, it was a big hit compared to that. Uh, eighty-seven thousand nine hundred eighty-seven dollars. Eighty-seven million, I mean, yeah. Eighty-seven million, excuse yeah, me. I'm sorry. That's pretty good money. Nine hundred eighty-seven thousand fifty-five dollars. All right. Well, then it was. So, that's why they did Jaws four? Then there was still money to be made. Yeah, they could still wring a little blood out of that, uh, Ugh. out of that stone. But you know, I, I don't want to drag on Jaws three too long because because I, I I think you know your description of it is is pretty much on the money. It's just a bad movie, and that's it's all there is to cheap- it. It's just cheap. It's shoddy looking, and and no, I mean, other than the fact that those guys are supposed to be Mike and the, the younger kid, I forget the name of the the second son. Is it Sean? Sean, 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 Sean. The fact that it's supposed to be the Brody children, which gives it some tangential connection to Jaws. It, it's it's awful. It's just awful. And and Sean is supposed to have a little residual fear of the water. Yes, yes. But yeah, it it had zero going for it. They they did not worry about putting together a script at all. I think they just. I think it was just viewed as a money grab. We're gonna we're gonna take advantage of the 3D technology that's right now a little bit in vogue. Yep. And there's so many excuse me so many scenes that are clearly designed to uh, to captivate the viewing audience by having the shark heading for them and that type yep. of thing. Yep. Uh, it's just it it's just it's got nothing going for it. And as we shift to Jaws: The Revenge. I will say, as stupid as Jaws of the Revenge is, it's got some kitschy moments that are actually amusing that this movie does not. Yeah, Jaws, there's a scene in Jaws 3 where a shark chomps down at a guy, and like the sound effect they dropped in is quite literally like a chomp sound effect, and it sounds like Jabberjaw. I mean, it's like the same thing <laughs> Hanna-Barbera would have used. It's so bad. It is such a bad movie. Oh, yeah, uh, this this one is getting a, you know, this one is going to be ranked Jaws 4 for me. <laughs> I love how convoluted this this system is. I can't wait to see future episodes of how you sort of square this ratings idea with. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to explain it to everybody. Like, uh, I'm gonna have to give a little expl- brief explanation of it every episode. Yeah, I love it. I, I love that you've 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 set this course and now you're gonna have to live with it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for wishing that on me. <laughs> so let's move on to Joe's the Revenge, so we can Ooh. end the pain here. Instinctively, man has always been drawn to the sea. Its beauty, its mystery, its secrets. But there is also a vague uncertainty, a sense of intrusion into an alien world where man is unwelcome and completely at the mercy of the most terrifying predator on Earth. Man's deepest fear has risen again. Jaws, the revenge. This time, it's personal.
Jaws the Revenge, I also think, is a terrible movie. Oh, but, it's but it's got some scenes in it that are just, again, kitschy and funny that you can laugh at them for being so stupid that yeah. that it's it's less painful to watch than Jaws 3. Well, I mean, first of all, it ignores the events of Jaws 3, which is very interesting. It completely, it does a, it does a Neil Blomkamp and that it completely avoids because now we have different sons, like the sons are back. Because Sean dies in Jaws 4. He di- Wait, does he die? He, he dies, dies in Jaws 4. He, I don't think he doesn't die in Jaws 3. No, he doesn't. But they ignore that history. Yes, like, they, they, they don't touch on it stuff. at all. Yeah. So in this one, Ellen, take, like, this movie's plot is so stupid that you're just like, wow, they really. Because the whole idea is Brody has died of a heart attack. And there's From shots fear. of. Huh? From fear of sharks. From fear of sharks. According to Brody. According to Ellen Brody. Makes no sense. The one photo they have of him, which you see, it looks like it's from the Jaws promotional material. They didn't even bother to like get like a like a, a still that we haven't seen before. It's literally like I think if you I think if you queue up IMDb and you you look up Roy Scheider, that's the photo you see. I think it's, it's a shot it. of him on the uh, orca. Yeah. Which, which would not exist. <laughs> which would not exist, right. What, what, him and Hooper were taking photos? I mean, come on. Uh, but, like, so Ellen grows convinced that the shark, which, of course, she keeps calling it, like, the shark, but it's not the shark, because the other sharks are dead. This is another shark. Has it out for the Brody family. And um, I love the idea that in the novelization, because, yes, there is a novelization of Jaws with the Revenge, the original idea was uh, a witch doctor put a curse on the Brody family and that's why the shark wants to kill the Brody family because it's that's better than what we got. Witch doctor. Yeah, I love that they left all that out because it just makes it more insane. But the idea that, that Ellen lives in total fear of water uh, is ridiculous. Nobody wants to see Ellen Brody as the main character, but yet here she is. It's the first film she had done in about 10 years. And she, again, she got it because since Steinberg was the head of the studio and she's never done another movie since. She's still around, but she's never done another movie since. And you've got Mario Van Peebles as this reggae guy. I talk like that, man. And Michael Caine, as we all know, just completely cashed a check. The, the, the effects are awful. I mean, the shark looks terrible. But it's like, I don't know, at least I, I, it's not a good movie, even remotely close. But to me, it's not a dismal departure from Jaws 3. Jaws 3 is so terrible. That I think that Jaws 4 is probably equally bad, not worse. But the shark kills Sean. Right. And then manages to find them in the Bahamas. Yes, the shark manages to swim several thousand miles in the course of, like, a day. It goes all the way from Massachusetts to the Bahamas in the course of and like, And specifically targets, you know, somehow knows yeah. who's members of the Brody family and who yeah. isn't. It can smell them, I guess. I, I guess. There's, there's a certain yeah. odor uh, <laughs> in the water. I, I it, It's just beyond stupid. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, yeah. But, I, you know... Unlike Dennis Quaid, Bess Armstrong, and Louis Gossett Jr. in Jaws 3, I don't care how much he's cashing a paycheck, and I don't care how stupidly a part is written, Michael Caine can always bring a smile to my face. Just he He's just, there's something about him that charms me. Yeah, because he's Michael Caine, you know? He's always fun. and one so of the, That's one of the things this movie has going for it, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it is unusual for a movie to have as, a, as its main romantic focus an older couple. I mean, like, because Ellen Brody's in her 50s and Kane is in his 50s. So, like, just that by itself is kind of unusual mm-hmm. for, for, for what was supposed to be kind of a mainstream action blockbuster kind of thing. So, like, that's kind of refreshing that they didn't, you know, they could have gone. They, I mean, they really could have made the main characters Mike and his wife and that annoying moppet of a daughter that they have. There is a scene, though, where they, they where Mike, uh, Mike Brody mimics 
the the scene on the dinner table with with his kid mm-hmm. and and you literally have a shot of of Ellen watching it again and I literally can't tell whether the filmmakers are intending to quote that scene or just are shamelessly ripping it off I I don't know I'm like come on guys I don't know I'm I'm going to I'm I'm watching it as a quoting the scene but I'm thinking they were trying to rip it off Yeah it's awful I mean you're just like it's such a pathetic thin version of what you have you you also have uh, Ellen Brody having flashbacks to scenes that she didn't view. Yes, she has flashbacks to scenes that took place on the Orca, which of course she was not on. So, so uh, what do you think on the money on this one? This I know was not a big hit. Uh, Budget-wise, I'm going to say they probably spent same amount. They kept kept the money low, but I'm I bet it made. I th- I'm going to say they spent twenty, made forty. Well, yeah, that's this is probably your closest one. They spent twenty three. And they made fifty one point nine. Look at that! Still a hit. Still made its money back. Still made double over. more than double the money. There you go. So yeah, the Jaws franchise. I mean, I think the only reason they never did a fifth one, at least as of this recording, is because the fourth one is so universally reviled. I mean, like everyone hated it. I mean, they redid the ending. Originally, the shark gets stabbed by the prow of the boat, and they had to redo it so it explodes at the end. And the effects are horrible. I mean, it's a completely, totally terrible rubber shark. You know, uh, one, is, one of the most one of the most laugh-inducing moments is towards the end of the movie. The shark is in the water, and and I guess it's reacting to that uh, machinery that they're using to make it crazy. Yeah. And it comes up to the surface, and it roars like a lion. Yep. Yeah. I'm just, you know, <laughs> how? <laughs> yeah, it's and it, like it has like these weird gums that look really thick. Look, is totally rubber. It's amazing that. 12 years later, the shark effects are worse than what they had in 1975. You know, like you would think that the technology would improve, but instead it got worse. The shark just looks stupider and stupider. It, yeah, it, it's the idea. I think he's like, he's chasing the Brody family. It's it's abysmal. It's just an abysmal movie. I will say this, though. The end credits feel features a new version of the John Williams theme, but done in a different arrangement, kind of faster, with almost a little bit of like a, a, a percussion, which mm-hmm. I actually kind of like. Actually, this is kind of a nice alternate version of the main theme. Like, actually, thought that was sort of catchy and like like genuinely well done. But that's the end credit music, not the ninety five minutes of garbage that precedes. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to rate this one as a Jaws: The Revenge, also. <laughs> but if I had to put them in order, I'd still put it slightly higher than Jaws Three because it's got at yeah. least moments that make me laugh. Yeah, yeah, I would I would agree with that. And I guess that's it for our Jaws retrospective for today. I have to say, the saddest thing is, if they made a Jaws 5, I'd go see it. Uh, I didn't, oh, just, I did not see Jaws the Revenge in the movies. I finally said I'm not paying money to go see these. And when it came out on home video, I rented it, I rented a VHS tape and watched it. (laughs) Yeah, same thing. I was like, I put that... In 87, I would have been 16. I was like, yeah, no pass. This is like At this terrible. point, if they made a Jaws 5, I would have to hear good reviews of it before I would see it. I, I, I think I'd be so curious that I would go. I, I mean, it would depend on, like again, like you're saying, like, who was in it. Like, if they actually made it like a an A-level production, uh, you know, uh, I'd probably go see it just because it's like, it's Jaws. I'd still, you know, like, I'd still, like I rented Piranha 3D or whatever that movie was, partly because Richard Dreyfuss was in it playing Hooper. I was like, okay, that's enough for me to just rent it, just so I could see it, and say I saw it. So that kind of. <laughs> oh, you're 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 made of sterner stuff than I am. I guess I have way too much free time. All right. Well, I thank you for having me on the Film and Water podcast, and I thank you for being on the Is It Yours pod- podcast. 
This is a weird crossover. Is it film and water? Is it Jaws? I'm, I'm kind of thinking that I'm guessing on your show, but of course this will also appear on our feed as well. So for anybody who came to film and water and is listening to this, please go check out Paul's show on the two true freaks network. Cause it will be a lot of fun as this episode indicates. It'll be better when other guests don't, don't hold. <laughs> and don't, anybody don't who's hold. listening to this on two true freaks, please check out film and water on the fire and water podcast network. Cause it's an excellent show and I enjoy listening to it. Even when you cover the rare movie, that I haven't seen. Well, thank you very much, Paul. I appreciate it. And I'm glad that we got a chance to talk Jaws because uh, just to peek behind the curtain, Jaws, Paul was supposed to be on the Jaws episode that I did, but scheduling just did not work out. So it ended up being just one guest, but we're going to have two different, I was going to have two different segments, one with Paul and one with Andrew Thaler, but that didn't quite work out. So then as soon as that sort of fell apart, we were like, well, let's do this so we can have a chance to talk about Jaws in depth, which of course we just did. So, uh, well, I'm sorry that wait, Paul, I didn't get to have you on Film and Water to talk Jaws. I'm glad we got a chance to do this because that was this was a lot of fun. Yeah, it really was. And uh, I do have a DVD sitting on top of my player right now that I have to watch yeah, right, in order right, to right. do because it's it's one of the lesser known films and I've never seen it. But I do. Uh, Rob and I do have plans to do another film and water podcast. Right. Right, right, right. So I have to I have to get that watched. And in the next couple of weeks, I guess we'll schedule a recording for that one. Absolutely. And, and I look forward to it. Me too. All right. Thanks again. Thank you. I got so desperate for something to do one night. I actually went to the video store. Listen to this. I rented all four Jaws movies in a row. <laughs> this is a low point in your life. When it's like 4.45, you're watching Jaws for the Revenge. That's the title. Jaws for the Revenge. And you're sitting there going, this shouldn't be the title. The title should be, here's a fish, you're stupid. That's the title. <laughs> you, you, ever, you ever see a movie like so bad that they just slap you in the face with how bad it is? You can't even pretend. You go, you know, maybe this movie isn't that bad. I'm not wasting my life. And they just go, yes, you are. Yeah. Are you sure? Absolutely. Look at you. It's four in the morning. You're sitting there with one sweat sock and a burrito watching a shark that only kills one family out of an entire ocean full of perfectly edible people for no reason that we ever explain. And you won't turn it off because you think it's going to get better. A movie. I'm still in pain from this. A movie so stupid that no matter how stupid, you couldn't be stupid enough to enjoy it. I mean, let's say you have no brain at all. Let's say you're sitting on your bed, here's you, a bucket of popcorn and a spinal cord, that's it. Even your spinal cord will go, hey, 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 hey. I'm not a brain, I don't have thoughts, but what is going on here? The mother of the family, check this out, has three people in her family eaten by the shark in one week. So a genius in her own right, she comes up with a plan. She says, well, shark is obviously after our family. Can't put anything over on me. It's only one thing to do, we'll have to leave town. And you're going, leave town? But wouldn't an apartment building be sufficient protection from the average shark? I mean, even if he's a really ambitious shark, right? Let's say, by the time he gets to the apartment building, parks in the guest spot, explains himself to the doorman, come up in the elevator, you would most likely smell fish and run. No, the mother is leaving town altogether. And you sit there. And you're going, but why doesn't the mother just not go in the water? Wouldn't that make more sense? And they go, well, ordinarily, yeah, but this is stupid. You see, in a stupid movie, everyone's stupid. The mother is stupid. The people that made it are stupid. But none of them are as stupid as you, because it is now 5.01, and you still think this is going to get better. So now, I mean... <laughs> the fish is coming up with plans to kill these people that the CIA couldn't figure out. I've caught fish, they're not that brilliant. 
They don't even make any noise when you're about to kill them. You ever see if they come up on a hook one? If they had any brains, they make noise, you wouldn't be able to kill them. They'd be going, ah, 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 And you have to go, whoa, start the boat, I'll get a burger at the dock. Did you see what just took place over there? So now comes a turning point in your life. If you don't turn off the movie now, just do the world a favor, and when the credits roll, get a vasectomy. The mother gets on a plane to get away from the shark, but before she goes, has an affair with Michael Caine. Typical reaction to this kind of tragedy. That's what I would do. <laughs> Most people would say, gee whiz, three people in my family have been eaten by a shark in one week. Jeez, am I horny. Man, I don't know. Man, why don't, gee. My goodness. Ooh, ooh, God. Ooh, the Tragedy, the bloodshed stopped me. I'm vibrating. Where's a blow-up doll when you need one? Who? I mean, so now, th get this. Here's the crescendo. The mother gets on a plane in Long Island, New York, to get away from the shark. Flies to the Bahamas. Are you with me here? An ideal place to avoid a fish. Small island surrounded by water. When she gets there, guess what? Not only has the shark discovered that they have travel plans to go to the Bahamas, but to boot, he has beat the jet to the Bahamas. <laughs> they land, there he is, couple of beers, Ray-Bans, and you're going, but wait a minute, that was a jet. Wouldn't a jet be faster than a shark? And they go, well, ordinarily, but again, this is stupid. You see, in a stupid movie, shark is the fastest transportation available. See, if you're going to London from New York, let's say, right? Tear up them Concord tickets, get the next fish out of town.